Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Whiskey, Web, and Whatnot. We're totally shaking things up for you today. We've got not an American whiskey, not a rye whiskey, but a Japanese whiskey. And we have video and we have a guest, which is crazy. This is totally outside of our spectrum of, of normal things. Yeah, we have uh, Chris Garrett with us today um, from the Embercore team. And we're going to yeah try this Japanese whiskey that he somewhat kind of recommended. I guess not the specific one, but it was his idea to, to pick a Japanese to whiskey. Japanese, yeah. Yep. I, uh, yeah. I've not had a Japanese whiskey yet, so I definitely wanted to try one. Sounded great. Yeah, well, same. Are, are you a Scotch fan? Generally, yes. Yeah. If okay. I had to pick a whiskey to drink straight, absolutely Scotch. First one I had was Laphroaig, and I was hooked after that. Also, I just love the whole like idea. They they were doing that promotion where they give you like a square foot of land on their distillery. Hmm, really? Like you you own it. I don't know how like legal it is, but like if you go to Laphroaig in Scotland, they'll give you rent in uh, the form of a uh, shot of whiskey <laughs> every year. <laughs> so, and they'll take you nice. to your square foot of land, your exact one that's yours. So, wow, that seems pretty cool. Yeah, that is uh, cool. I mean, I think it's I not still a, have it's not a huge country. So you wonder if they duplicated those efforts at any point and it's like two people happen to show up to see their same plot of land and they're like, <laughs> oh, we mean right right here next to you, next to each other. Yeah, <laughs> I, I wouldn't be surprised. Mm. Um, but yeah, should we uh, crack it open? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it comes in a box too. It's fancy. Let's see. Mm -hmm. Not a wooden box. Very fancy box. Nope. So yeah, Chuck looked it up before this. This is a hundred percent malted barley, which is pretty normal for a Scottish style whiskey. We uh, usually use malted barley or various kinds of malts. Sometimes you get the fancy ones, which are single malt. Um, this one is a malt blend. I know that. And what makes this one different? And uh, I didn't realize it until actually just today is uh, it's finished in cedar casks. Um, yeah, I saw that. There's like a, I mean, I don't want to get this wrong. There's protectors of shrines in Japan with that produce this alcohol and like have the cedar trees and stuff, I guess. I don't know. It sounds cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Well, it, all, most whiskey is aged in oak. So sometimes yeah. used oak, sometimes new, new oak. Bourbon has to be... New charred American oak. Uh, just for fun, maybe you didn't realize this, Robbie, but I'm a little obsessive about making sure I get the measurement correct for my glass. So yeah, I you use do that. a little. Yes, <laughs> I do that. I do it. Um, something I picked up from the Jack Rose in DC when I lived there. All right. Uh, Chris, you were mentioning something around. Now I'm not going to let you taste it yet. You were mentioning some things around how you have it at first. Uh, and. My opinions on that are, uh, there was an old man uh, when I was doing a tour of Buffalo Trace or something, I think it was, and was just talking about whiskey in general. It was just, his advice is the best one is the one you like. And I think that kind of transcends across the way you like it as well. Um, so if you like it on ice, just have it on ice. Who cares? All right, totally. let's try. Cheers. 
That mm. is nice. That's a nice whiskey. Yeah, it's oh, pretty yeah. good. Smooth. Yeah, it's pretty smooth. Got the smoke, but not not heavy. Not like blow you away kind of. I think it's like yeah, I mean, or something. It has like a lot of smoke up in there, like liquid smoke. That one gets to be a little much for me. My uh, cousin, who I mentioned earlier, he is super into whiskeys. Um, he gave me one that was like one of the most peaty whiskeys uh, of all time or something. And I was just like, yeah, I'm just drinking straight liquid smoke. <laughs> it was insane. <laughs> yeah. I, I think I coughed. <laughs> yeah. As far as scotch style whiskeys go, this is pretty smooth and, and uh, not too. I was telling Chuck in a previous episode that I think uh, scotches kind of smell like a Sharpie sometimes. And you don't get quite as much of that with this. It's like, it's more rounded and um, yeah, not quite as peaty, I guess, is maybe the Sharpie smell. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that the Japanese ones tend to have more smoothness and not like punch you in the throat with some of the flavors, the peatiness or the smokiness or whatever. Uh, so it's kind of nice about those. Yeah. I definitely get the feel like the, the feel of a different wood here compared to normal, like the cedar kind of comes out for me. I don't, I have no idea if it's a new or used cedar barrel though. What else would you have used it for? Do people age things in cedar often? Uh, not that I know of. Typically it's, it's, uh, oak barrels and, uh, you know, they're either new or used. Yes. Yeah. Or like for wine and stuff, I think probably just wine, not, not whiskeys. You do French versus American for like the different amounts of oak and, you know, different little bit of flavors there. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't heard of cedar before. Here we go. Has to do with that whole, uh, Japanese God of protection of something. I don't know. <laughs> I didn't listen to all of Does that. Does it? I don't know. I thought you had said it was something about like cedar being, or maybe I just read into that. I think, I think you just weren't paying attention to what I was saying. It's possible. The back of the box says it's our working relationship. You know, (laughs) the back of the box says something about it. It's from a shrine in like one of the oldest shrines in Japan. There's the protector of alcohol producing families uh, located in the ancient capital of Nara amid a dense forest of Yoshino Sugi. Japanese cedar. There's like a shrine in a cedar forest that they're making this in, which sounds pretty cool. Hmm. Yeah, cool job. Honestly, now I want to visit this uh, distillery. <laughs> I, I really <laughs> want to just visit Japan in general. Like that's Same. one of our big vacation. Like we, we want to go for like three weeks and just see as much of the country as we can. Yeah, I would like, I consider most vacations or travels to be about eating my way around the country. And I'm really <laughs> into ramen. So I'm like, I want to go to Tokyo because it's like weird, cool, all that stuff going on there. And then yes. you go out into the countryside and you get these like beautiful excursions. Yeah, I used to work for National Geographic and I would look oh, at wow. some of their travel excursions and even they're pretty expensive, but even if I wasn't going to take it, I really like the routes that they plot out. And sometimes they're like photography based ones too. And so you, and that's kind of what they say, you like end up in, in and out of Tokyo, but then you like take the train all around and yeah, it seems I would love to do the same thing. Yeah. There's actually this, um, it's like an ancient pilgrimage trail. Uh, it's, it's outside of Kyoto, I think. So we were thinking about doing that and that's like a three day thing. 
and uh, definitely want to check out some other stuff in the countryside in general too. But we'll see. I it's definitely a ways away still. <laughs> yeah. Our next yeah. trip is going to be Hawaii, and that's that's well, going to be nice. Yeah, that's a it's a little slight. It's a different pace, different setup. I I've yeah. been to Maui. I love it. You've been most places, though, to be fair, uh, Chuck. I haven't been to Japan, and I haven't been to South Africa. Those are some areas that we had talked about as not me and you. My wife and I had discussed as the <laughs> next big trips. Sorry, you I don't you get to go to. Eh, well, we'll see what we can work out. Get a bulk deal. Uh, we should circle back to this brown stuff we're having. Yeah, so um, we do a tentacle rating system, Chris. Um so it's between one to eight tentacles. So I would give this a seven, I think. I think it's pretty good. I typically am not a huge scotch fan. And so for me, this is, I mean, I know it's not a scotch necessarily, but scotch style kind of. So for me, this is really good, really balanced. Um, yeah, interested to hear what you guys think. I would give it a seven. Um, I think I've I'm really enjoying it, but I also just haven't had that many whiskeys. So I don't know if I could give it a full eight. Maybe I would circle back and realize, oh yeah, that's an amazing whiskey. I love it. But for now, seven, really good. Would keep drinking it. <laughs> would would drink. Uh, there aren't a lot of those where I say would not drink. But uh, yeah, in Japanese style whiskeys, which are malted whiskeys, there's, there's your blanket that you could put things in, right? Their mash bill is malt. And, uh, and that's the same with scotch and, and with Japanese whiskeys. Um, so with this particular one, yeah, I get, uh, I do like how it's mellow. Um, the, the flavors are a little bit different with the cedar, like in the mid, like mid taste, like the mid palate for me, I start to get like a little bit of a, I don't know, a smell and taste of like banana leaf. I don't know if you've had a lot of like uh, Southeast Asian foods, but sometimes there's like I've never had a banana serving of thing. Yeah, well, I don't think you eat the actual leaf, but you get you know, or it's usually like wrapped and steamed or cooked within banana leaves, so you get like some of the essence of it. And I don't know, I'm catching that in the middle. I'd say mm. I have had quite a few Japanese whiskeys, um, although since it's very popular now, there are a whole bunch of new ones. So lots that I haven't had, um, but I've had like the big names like Nika, a few of their uh, releases all the way up to the 17. I've had the Yamazaki, both the 12 and the 18 and the 18 at one point was like the world's number one whiskey. Um, pretty good stuff. Uh, I've had some Hibiki, which tends to be a little high smoke peat kind of like this. So I would give this a six. I think it's pretty good. I think the cedar is different, but a little weird for me and maybe I'm just not used to it. And so, so I get a six and that's not a bad thing. I would definitely would drink again as long as Robbie buys it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's better than last week's where you were like mid podcast. I'm going to switch whiskeys cause I do not like this one. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. And that one was gifted. So you're welcome. Nice. Yeah. I'm going back and forth between ice and no ice. Um, I don't have a refined enough palette to tell you the difference, but I'm mm -hmm. kind of like you, Chris, I, I like ice. I can't tell you why I just do. So. I know it tastes better cold. I kind of want to try whiskey stones at some point to see if that, if I like that more, but I definitely like it cold in general. So there's yeah. a smidge of science to adding water because water adds oxygen, um, dilutes it, oh, some, that kind of stuff. Yeah. That's what so I heard. 
when you get real whiskey geek, you can do it in various ways. When I was trying new things, a lot of times I would have it as is, just as the distiller intended. And then I have a little dropper bottle of some distilled water. And then you could add like two or three drops just to give it that similar f- effect without actually over diluting it or changing, you know, the temperature and, 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 uh, and watering it down over time. So if you just like cold, yeah, I would recommend the risk, the whiskey stones. I mean, it's great for that. You can, uh, you could even try like kind of chilling your glass beforehand. So I actually did that, uh, as well. I, I really yes. like it cold. <laughs> you really like it cold. Yes. Yes. And that's another reason why sometimes people put like a splash of soda into their whiskey just to give it some of that refreshing effervescence. I don't know. For me, scotches tend to be lower proof anyway, so I don't tend to do that very often. But uh, yeah, I have a, I like a higher proof whiskey. I like something around 110. You want it to punch you in the mouth? Yeah, I need a little bit of that. I mean, as as some folks know, I'm from Kentucky and, you know, a punch in the mouth is like a Kentucky hug. (laughs) The, The burn you get from some whiskeys, that's actually what we call it, the Kentucky hug. <laughs> Learn something new today. Huh. What's so it anyway, like uh, growing up in Kentucky? Uh, well, so I was in northern Kentucky, so I was actually very urban right across from Cincinnati. So, you know, skateboard kid, hopping on buses. Uh, I rode trains to uh, – I, I used to hop trains down to middle school or grade school, things like that. You know, uh, urban kid getting in trouble. Pretty standard I, America. I just, I guess <laughs> I just keep just, learning new stuff about you. Did not know you skateboarded. Yeah. I was big into it until I was about 13. So yeah, I think I did like four years or so skated up uh, in Cincinnati. I can't remember the pros I met, but I did meet some pros at the time and everything too. Could you like do tricks and stuff? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I could do kick flips and slide down the guardrails and all that stuff. It's wow. pretty decent for a nice. while. I could almost do an ollie. That's just about <laughs> as good, right? <laughs> uh, I rode half pipes and some other stuff too. So yeah, decent, especially given like I started, I think I started when I was like eight or nine though too. Oh, wow. Yeah. I tried to skateboard and longboard. Um, and I, I was born with like three left feet. I just have no <laughs> body coordination at all whatsoever. So nice. almost died a few times. Mm. Uh, that's about it. Oh, well, <clears throat> I changed schools and the pretty girls like the soccer players. So that was my new thing. Yep. <laughs> nice. So Chris, what's going on in the Ember world right now? What's the new hotness coming out? Uh, well, you know, Ember Conf is coming up. So that's uh, a lot of preparation time going into that. I'm doing two talks and... Yes, two talks, uh, and it is um, going to be well. One of them is a lightning talk, um, but yeah, this year was definitely pretty rough, and they're going to be a little bit more rushed than my previous talks, I think, because um, I I was working literally until like last week um, or maybe the week before, I don't remember, but to get one of the features that I'm talking about out, and that's that's another big thing that's happening: um, template imports. Uh, so that's really going to completely, I mean, I don't think it's going to completely change the way you write Ember apps, but it's, it's going to be a pretty significant shift 
I think it makes it much clearer where things are coming from. Uh, and it also just gives you so many more capabilities. Um, so just for context, template imports, like the whole idea today in Ember apps, you use a component, you use a helper and Ember kind of just figures out where it's uh, coming from based on like file system heuristics, right? Components are in app slash components, helpers are in app slash helpers. And that actually adds like a ton of complexity to Ember. Um, it adds a ton of complexity to your mental models as a developer and especially adds a lot of complexity to like the build system, right? Like how add-ons do that, like the whole app merging process mm. is kind of really uh, difficult to understand, right? Um, so the idea was that like originally the idea was we would have like module unification or whatever, and you would, you know, refer to components by like a fully qualified name. So you'd be like my add on, uh, I think it was like at my add on at, um, uh, or maybe it was colon colon. I don't remember, but my add on my component name and so on. Uh, but that fell through for a number of reasons, uh, complexity being one of them. Uh, people actually used it early on. It, it turned out that it was actually harder to understand, especially stuff around like local lookup, which I, I don't even want to get into. If if we want to talk about local lookup, we can, but it was just super complicated. <laughs> so we stepped back and we were looking at like what other uh, ecosystems were doing with imports. And we really realized like it just makes a lot more sense to use explicit imports. It works better with tooling. Uh, other, you know, frameworks were doing it, multiple other frameworks, and it was very successful. I think we, we in Angular are like the only ones, and maybe I guess web component based frameworks, right? That like register their web components in the global custom elements namespace. Mm -hmm. um, so we're the only ones like Vue, Svelte, React, uh, like ton of other smaller ones. They all do like imports. Um, so, uh, and then it would also just integrate better with bundling. It'd integrate better with other tooling, editor support. Uh, it would make TypeScript a lot easier to support. Um, that's something else that's coming up. The uh, Type Denver team has been working on typed templates, and I think they're getting pretty close to um, having something like that you can actually kick the tires on. One sec. Excuse me. Um, but yeah, so I spent basically the last six months uh, implementing and building strict mode, which is how you kind of start using template imports. The idea with strict mode is it's like JavaScript strict mode, um, but with templates. So you enable strict mode in a template and certain things are no longer allowed. Um, so that includes, um, like using partials, for instance. Uh, also, this fallback, you know how you can just refer to a property without using this, and it kind of mm -hmm. adds the this for you? That's no longer allowed because that's been deprecated for a long time. Um, and then resolution is the other thing, and that's uh, resolving based on file name and all that. So kind of... At the same time, that implies you have to have some other way to provide the uh, components and helpers in scope in the template. And that's what 
uh, is template imports. So it's kind of like a sub part of strict mode, like strict mode's larger than in the Venn diagram. It, it encapsulates template imports, um, but template imports is probably the part that will, most people will um, really uh, see as like the biggest impact. Nice. So, so yeah. does, does that give us uh, tree shaking for templates then? Uh, it should. Like in theory, the work that Ed is doing, uh, Ed Faulkner is doing in um, Embroider will also do that to some extent. His work is basically like adding those import statements um, automatically mm. based on like using just build tooling and then allowing the build the like webpack or snowpack or whatever to um, use those import statements that were automatically generated. So I wouldn't say that it's entirely blocked on that, but it will make that much more of a natural process, right? Like you'll, you'll be able to just, um, yeah, import uh, values and it'll just be able to follow them without having to have that automatic generation step. Gotcha. So since you mentioned it, um, are there plans for like snowpack or I don't know, there's a ton of people putting out tons of stuff like that, like Vite for view. And, um, so there's like WMR, like more module replacement thing from preact or whatever. I don't know. A bunch of them I've been hearing about. So, um, yeah. How does, how does that work with Ember? Uh, well, the whole idea with embroider is that in theory, we can switch out the uh, the underlying implementation. Um, so ideally, you don't really have to worry about what we're using at a given moment. And in the future, we could switch to another bundler. Um, and there's also some other benefits you get with this. Like, for instance, we're going to automatically bundle uh, based on routes. Uh, so you don't have to figure out like, oh, I have to use like dynamic import and tell Webpack exactly how to bundle this route separately from that one. And oops, I accidentally imported something synchronously that I thought was going to be in the other bundle. And now everything's bundled together again. Like all that complexity is going to be handled for you idiomatically, um, conventionally. Um, but yeah, so at, when we get started, it's just going to be Webpack. And that's because Webpack's, you know, the dominant uh kind of player in the ecosystem at the moment uh but i think like there's nothing about the architecture that ties us specifically to webpack and the only thing that will is like if people start using custom webpack plugins and whatnot and that'll only tie us in the sense that those people will probably have to you know have an extra upgrade step and we'll have to have like an a b kind of like a glimmer components kind of world where we support both for a while right yeah, so makes sense. I definitely want to make sure that it's a possible thing in the future. Gotcha. Yeah. It's, it's kind of interesting because, um, I think I've, I've talked to you a little bit about it in the past, but I've been using Nuxt a little bit and they kind of have some of the magic import stuff as well. Like, you know, you put stuff in pages and it's automatically a route and then like, but they had temp, uh, component imports. You had to import everything. And they've just gone the other way, made a thing where you can say components true and it auto imports all your components. Interesting. So, yeah, yeah. So I don't know if that breaks their tree shaking or like how that works behind the scenes, but it's just it's interesting. Because they follow a lot of the Next.js patterns. And I'm not sure if that's a part of Next.js or not, but the, whole, the same like automatic routing from 
your pages structure. I mean, that's the same setup that Next has uh, in play, and their you know their setup is essentially compile out to where every page can be a serverless function too. So that huh. you know that that yeah, their architecture is intended for that for a particular output that you know can make these functions per route. Yeah, I can understand also why a view-based framework might want to. Um, prioritize that because they have to like re-export their imports or at least the last time I checked they had to do that and that I can imagine is just an annoying bit of boilerplate in a smaller app you know you don't really especially if you don't have like tooling that does it for you type of thing um, I don't know I personally definitely think that after using them for a while especially in larger apps being able to just go to definition and stuff like that is invaluable. And yeah, we can do that with like language server and stuff like that. But I, I really like the, um, the experience so far with the template imports. So we'll see. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of the stuff that you and everybody have been working on over the past couple of years has really kind of, standardized ember a little more towards what kind of other frameworks have been doing so i think you know it's nice from a just general javascript perspective like as a more junior developer for learning things you can see like okay i'm going to import things in all these different frameworks i'm going to use them kind of the same way the syntax is a little different and um you know you're not like oh i'm trying to learn ember uh, there's no imports or anything there everything's just there and like i have to know where to put it in folders and like you know that's that makes it just so much easier. I feel like for the learning curve, totally. And then I think the uh, like longer term, we want to make that story even better by really like I refer to it like rebasing Ember on top of Glimmer.js. Currently, Ember and Glimmer.js both build on top of Glimmer VM, but a little bit separately. And at some point, we want to kind of merge the two so that. Ember is using the Glimmer.js APIs on top of Glimmer VM uh, to render everything. And Glimmer.js basically gives you an API like render component. You just you tell it, here's, a, here's my component. That's my root component. Here's the element I want to render it into. Um, and go nuts. Um, and here's the arguments I want to pass to it. And so it's just like you know rendering a React component or a Vue component. Um, and I think that that will be really good for people who are familiar with those frameworks and who just want to like kind of get their feet wet with Ember without, you know, having to um, learn the whole framework, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think Robbie and I have actually spoken about it in a uh, past podcast as that was sort of the differentiator early on is that people could uh, dive into React and have, you know, a win in 10, 15 minutes and be like, oh, look at this cool thing that's dynamic that I just made. And then of course, when they need to get into the real world and do a lot, whole lot more things, like they don't, they don't have these, like these predefined paths to success. And then you're hodgepodging and bolting on whatever random stuff along the way. Ergo, this is where we found ourselves versus you know, Ember takes a lot more time initially to get what you want. But of course, what you want is a full-fledged, you know, grown-up web application and it's ready for that. And so, you know, your time to win 
is a lot longer. But of course, you know, after that initial hardship, you, you get a lot out of the box. Right. And I think we could kind of bend the curve there, like make it very easy to get started and try out Glimmer. Just understand, do I like this templating language? Do I like this auto tracking thing? You know, do I like the its take on rendering and state management in general? Um, and I think that's really where, you know, we are, our strengths are like, if you're not into the React model of like, uh, externalizing all your state or using hooks for everything, uh, that if it just doesn't make sense to you, like I've tried MobX with hooks and it feels like it's just fighting the framework. And I've looked at the MobX React code and it feels like it's fighting the framework. Um, and Vue does have a more similar model to what we do in Ember. Uh, but it also has like a personally more like angular one templating language that I'm not a super fan of. Um, and I also don't like the way that just anything is reactive under data, right? It's like any, the way they do that is, uh, not very safe. And I personally don't really like it very much. It's just not very explicit. Um, and it can break very easily if you're not, basically, if you put anything that has a private field into data in (laughs) view, it, it's going to break entirely. I believe. Um, so stuff like that. So we have, by contrast, like explicit auto track data where you annotate all the things that are tracked uh, very explicitly. And then we have a pretty mature templating language uh, that declaratively responds to changes in that data. And it's all integrated all the way down through the entire rendering layer, which is not the same with like MobX and React, for instance. Yeah. Um, yeah. MobX being state management on top of that, which still doesn't give you an application. Uh, oh, yeah. you know? So it's again, it's, 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 yeah, it's not anywhere near like an apples to apples comparison. You know, you're, you're deciding on a pattern for state management and then, yeah, you still need React router and all yeah. of its, but totally. to be honest in the React world, I actually really like, the next framework, I think that like it's giving it a lot of like sane defaults to get ready and going and some interesting things that they're doing with the API routes also there to sort of give you a ser- uh, like a server bolt, bolt on along the way. Um, yeah, totally. you, you mentioned MobX a, a few different times and that experience isn't great. The last time I had an experience with that was uh, to refactor it out and have components a bit more stateful, just using hooks along the way. And, you know, more of a, more of an Ember-like pattern where the components are dumb and, and your higher order components are controlling some of that. But yeah, getting like an overall like state management package out of there, I highly agree with. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, the, the reason I bring up MobX is because it is more similar to how we think about state and Ember. Um, and I really just think it's like, it's just two very different models of thinking about state. Like if you, if you like the Redux like kind of solution or like use state, which is just like, or use reducer, right? They're like kind of similar. Um, use state's just, kind of more distributed in a way, but it, it makes you think in a very similar way. 
React is totally pushing you towards that, you know? And I see some advantages to it and it can be nice. I have also been very confused by it multiple times and had very tricky little bugs when I was doing things that would have been trivial (laughs) in other frameworks. So I don't know. I'm not sold on it. But yeah. Yeah. Especially when you try to put it in an Ember app, like I was using Ember Redux, uh, a few jobs ago and was not my favorite experience. I mean, some people love it, but not for me. I I think if you used, like I made the tracked Redux library a while back because people were, uh, basically being like, we can't like make a tracked version of Redux. How are we supposed to do tracked and Redux and stuff? I was like, no, you can, it's totally possible. I'll make it. And then I made it. Um, Uh, yeah, it's a it's a real paradigm shift, I think, more than anything. And people get used to and, and have the, the comforts and benefits of a particular pattern. And, you know, yeah, you can you can certainly debate, you know, pros and cons all along the way and have, you know, I'm sure both sides of, of the story can have successes, oh, yeah. say. Right. But uh, what you're comfortable with, there's something to be said with that because you can be productive with what you're most comfortable with. Even at the end of the day, if a team of 10 says it's shit, you know, well, I made this thing with it, right? So it's, yeah, it's interesting. There's, there are some of those that I think that are very clever ways to solve a problem that may or may not require that level of complexity. That's how I think of it sometimes. Yeah. Some people just love complexity. Like I want to make it hard. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I want to rethink this thing that works sometimes, right? (laughs) Because I have some, you know, I, I have a, a research paper on it and I, I've come up with some other algorithms to attack the problem. I do think, though, like regressing a little bit back to like, you know, bringing up Glimmer a few different times. And I haven't done too much uh, with it uh, since I did a Glimmer talk, like after its release. And I did a little demo and like a Glimmer talk. And I did think like, oh, this independently actually has a lot of power, I think, for people to show a different pattern of doing things and being apples to apples to react. And I wonder it would be interesting to take that down a few different paths because like one thing that Robbie and I've talked about a few different times is sort of like, what is the Ember native equivalent to react native? Because react native has a lot of power there starting uh, early up and getting, you know, closer to the hardware and then giving you a way to sort of, have three applications from one code base and there's a couple of bolt-ons around that. Like I wonder if Glimmer could really take a similar path there to, you know? Yeah, it absolutely could. Um, there actually is a Glimmer native project that uh, somebody was working on for a little while and it apparently used native script and um, he was able to build a uh, like kind of, basic app. I think he was trying to convince his company to choose it. Um, but the, the issue is that, uh, I think it's, it's about finding somebody to support it because the thing about the native script ecosystem is it from my experience with it. And from what I've seen is that any large company eventually outgrows it. Like, Airbnb dropped React Native, um, and you know Facebook does use it, but they also have a very unique uh, 
type of app. They also use a ton of web views, or at least they did historically. Um, most other companies do not really use it at scale and instead go native. Uh, in, in my experience and from everybody that I've talked to. Um, so yeah, it's much better for small scale projects, um, or getting started iterating quickly, right? Because it's not as uh, resource intensive. It's not, you don't need like an iOS developer and an Android developer, but you do get a lot of those benefits that you talked about, right? It's not like developing a progressive web app, which has its own like ton of pitfalls and is much harder, like in terms of getting good performance, in terms of getting a good UX, even with like Cordova, uh, phone gap type of solution, it's way harder to match what you can do with React Native, totally out of the box. Um, but that's the problem. Like that mid-sized company that is like just getting started, uh, like my wife's company, Long Game, they use React Native, uh, but they're also, you know, 10 people and they've been iterating incredibly quickly and uh, going through many different uh app designs like they they it meets their use cases very uh well and i think at some point if they you know uh get their uh next round of funding and everything they they may end up going native they've even talked about it uh, so finding that like company that is willing to sponsor that work and kind of get it going so that at least after that it can become a community effort to um kind of support that's that's the hard part because linkedin for instance uh is just definitely not going to be interested in that i actually spoke to an ios developer uh once and i brought up the idea of it i, I don't even think i brought that up i brought up like progressive web apps and like how we were doing that because that is something we still do want to support in the future um and is much easier for us to support as a framework um and he was like, yeah, if uh, Glimmer, if we, if LinkedIn ever did like a Glimmer native or React native, I would quit like straight up. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Um, right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, okay. So yeah, that's a great, great uh, point that you bring up that like resources as a whole, um, you know, you have a mature iOS and a mature Android team. What does this bring to the table? It is more appealing to smaller teams that want to distribute across platforms <clears throat> that maybe don't aren't super resource intensive. And then like, that's a great fit. And then it's sort of as those apps mature, maybe there's some migration there that does make, you know, that's, that's a pretty good case for that. I think that's probably true. It's interesting. I was on a project last year where <clears throat> there was the intention to sort of have similar views shared across and we were able to utilize some React Native via Expo to export views that could be rendered within Flutter and then going into like iOS and some other stuff. You know, yeah, exactly. And like, so you have your progressive web app that could be, you know, just the normal web things, but then these were shared Expo views that were uh, ingested by both the progressive web app and ingested by Flutter to eventually become iOS. But again, you know, yeah, yeah. And this was, uh, so it was a, like an admin app for, um, 
in-field pros working with IoT devices. So again, it's like really specific scope and where you know like hardware-wise, this is gonna work really well. I mean, you know, something like LinkedIn where you're gonna have a lot of like media content or you might want access to, okay, I need microphone, I need these other things that like, oh, you're on the metal. What's the best way to do that? I mean, native always kind of keeps winning there because you either yeah. have bugs or or performance issues related once you start to like add those layers. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, there's no one size fits all. I think that's really what it comes down to. Uh, yeah, I think at least currently that's true. Um, basically, I think the next like five, 10 years, native script solutions will continue to have a niche and especially like quick apps that need to be built like that that are very scoped right um internal corporate apps right or uh you know maybe a restaurant wants an app like something smaller that's custom and again it, it isn't going to be like you know uh linkedin or facebook or uh you know a game app or something mm-hmm. um that is going to be a great niche for native script solutions for quite a while. I think eventually progressive web apps are going to close the gap. Um, to me, it's a matter of when, not if, and that's because the web platform has just continued to like slowly grow. It grows so slowly. And I think people, it can, uh, underestimate the trajectory because of that at some point, like it feels like it's never going to happen. Um, but if, you know, you go back 10 years and look at what the web platform has done, like WebAssembly is a thing and it is slowly gaining usage pretty soon. You're going to be able to write any language in the browser at all, like any language you want. It's going to be able to translate between different languages pretty easily compared to previous runtimes compared to other operating systems and whatnot. Um, and then service workers are finally happening. Uh, weak refs are happening. So you'll actually be able to use WebAssembly from like JavaScript much more easily and use WebAssembly with the DOM much more easily. Yeah, I I just think at some point it's going to close that gap. I think it's yeah. going to take a lot of time. And I also think like, you know, it really depends what uh, Google and Apple decide because is it going to even into their app store revenue and stuff? Who knows? Uh, but I'm sure they kind of see the writing on the wall too, because I like talk about how the the web browser somehow became like the universal VM sometimes. And when I say that, I mean like this would this is in like Civilization Seven or Eight or whatever. This is a technology on the tech tree. Like the universal VM is a like an actually really valuable technology. And Java originally wanted to be the universal VM. Like it wanted to be like, write anything, run it anywhere. And um, then it got bought by, you know, Oracle and whatever. <laughs> that didn't work. But JavaScript somehow became it. And then it just keeps pushing that. So did you know that like you can write, there's a startup that was like making it so you could write Wasm on the Ethereum blockchain? I had no idea, had but in a way that doesn't surprise me because what can't go into a blockchain as yeah. a everything, but there's also, I, there's also like startups that are making little like IOT devices that can run Wasm on like 
you know, a Raspberry Pi type thing so that you don't have mm. to code in C. Like it's literally going to be everywhere because it just happens to work everywhere. So why not? Yeah. Yeah. Is it, was, it like the next evolution of the Chrome OS then, in a way? Maybe. I mean, yeah. I mean, Chrome OS is almost like the next iteration of AOL for me because for some people, that's their gateway to the internet, right? And yeah. it's through this curated interface. So, anyway, I haven't sorry, actually Robert. ever used Chrome OS. I don't know that I have either. I, yeah, I had a, a little netbook once that I turned into a Hackintosh back in the day, and it started with Chrome OS first. And then, anyway. Hmm. So for like 30 minutes, I used it. And then I was like, yep, I'm done with this. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting kind of talking about there's been so much work put into JavaScript running everywhere and, you know, all different kinds of ways. Has there been anything for anything else? Like, is anyone trying to run, I don't know, other languages everywhere? Or is I, everyone just like, you know, on the, I know web development, so I would like to do this for everything and... You know, I, I think the closest before that was Java. And I think that was kind of the pitch that Sun was giving back in the day. I mean, I wasn't there. I was like six or something. So if, you know, Let's somebody is watching this podcast. Here. Hey, Chris, we want to remain <laughs> friends. <laughs> um, but yeah, my understanding was like they had a lot of really cool ideas like that. Like that was part of why Java applets were a thing. Um, they wanted, that's kind of why the import system is the way it was like, you know, com.org.whatever, uh, Java things. They wanted you to actually be able to just import like modules, like Java code directly from the internet. And so they figured you should organize your modules by like company names so that you could like have the DNS, look it up and stuff. And, um, they, they had a lot of really cool ideas. It just eventually... My take on it is that eventually it kind of got locked down because they realized they could make a profit off of it. And they focused just on supporting Java for their like corporate use cases for the most part. Um, JavaScript, on the other hand, kind of wormed its way in through the document viewer. More and more people wanted more and more powerful things out of JavaScript. Eventually, they figured out they could make it really fast. And, oh, it just happens to be on literally every platform. Like, why don't... It literally is just like the the most amazing accident that's ever happened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not mad at it. I enjoy JavaScript. I, I feel like less and I, I enjoy it less and less every year. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's it's got its ups and downs. It's, You're becoming a crotchety old man like me. <laughs> There's a, a whole bit. bunch of things I don't like, but... We don't have to talk about it this episode. <laughs> My biggest thing is like spending hours and hours debugging performance things. Like when you have to try to understand what is going on under the hood of JavaScript virtual machines, it's, I wish I could just use a language like Rust and just know, like, I, I messed up my memory allocation. Mm. There we go. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. But that's the fun though. It's the wild west, right? You can mm. be like, this variable is a string. Now it's a number. Now it's whatever. Now it's gone. Like, you know, wait, wait. <laughs> listen, Yehuda, if you're listening, come get this man. He, he wants to be on your team. <laughs> I'm sure he is. Uh, anyway, you guys are continuing to enjoy 
Yeah. I mean, it's late for me. Like I, I had a couple of drinks before the podcast, to be honest, like, I had some dinner and aperitivo and you know, I'm, I'm doing, doing well over here. So. Oh, right. Yeah. We're on the, well, I'm one hour ahead of you, Chris, and in Arizona, you know, sometimes we're on the same time. Sometimes we're not because that's just how we do it here. Cause you don't do daylight savings, right? No, no. I like daylight savings. Go away. There's yeah, a few things everyone that, would do that. Yeah. We're not farmers anymore. Let's be honest. I really <laughs> wish it, it causes like accidents every year, right? Like a lot of accidents. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cause people are tired. It's messed up. <laughs> exactly. Just stick to the same time. You know around. what I would be okay with is daylight savings time. But every time we just jump forward, like so that I get that <laughs> extra hour of sleep every time. I mean, I'm perfectly okay with that. <laughs> so at some point in your life, <laughs> yeah. At some point in your life, you're working at midnight. I'm okay but, with it, but it's not midnight. Actually, it's just three o'clock. Yes. Yeah, I don't know why we were so you know focused on making that the thing. Anyway, why does it have to be okay? You know, six p.m. is kind of the same time of day everywhere. Why couldn't it just be one time for everyone? And then if you're somewhere, it's 12. If you're somewhere, it's six. Like, doesn't matter. China does that. China has oh, one yeah. time zone. China is as big as the US, but it has one time zone. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. It's a choice. I guess most everyone lives in one place, though. There's not a lot of people in the rest of China. <laughs> There's a lot of people in China, man. Um, I mean, most people do live on the coast, though. Yeah, but yeah. like, yeah, that's there's the a lot of people in Xinjiang areas, but yeah. or Xi'an. Yeah. Where else are you going to yeah. put the factories? The big factories that they, they people live in and and have their entire lives in. So. Yeah. yeah, I guess it's harder to ship things from the middle of a country. If you have a good train network, not as much, and they do have a pretty that's good true. train network. Have you been to China? Yeah, uh, I have actually. I went to um, started off in Hong Kong, uh, crossed over to Guangzhou, went up to Changsha, which is like just uh, below Beijing. Then we went inland to Xi'an, which is in Xinjiang, which is where like all the Uyghur stuff is happening right now. Like that's really messed up. Um, and I actually thought that was one of the most interesting parts of the trip because I'd never seen, like, I never imagined I would have seen a mosque in China. Um, and also just the people in general, it was like, you could tell they were like halfway between like Middle Eastern and like Han Chinese. Um, it was like almost that missing link, right? Like, it, it just sometimes it feels like there's such dramatic differences between people. And then you find out that it really isn't like we're all just, you know, the same. And there's just this anyways. Um, and so then, then we traveled actually up through Tibet, which was also really cool and ended up in Nepal. Oh, wow. Nice. And so this was a, just a leisure trip, not a business trip. No, this was just kind of one of those like Odyssey, uh, explore the world type of trips. Um, it was a good time. I I don't know if I'd recommend it anymore. Actually, just things have gotten a little sketchy right. over there. <laughs> um, but at the time, it was it was very interesting uh, to see. Like in a lot of ways, they were so much more uh, you know open than we are. Like. You know, you go to any um, 
shopping center in America and you're going to see like big box stores and like the same chains over and over. You go to the just shopping ch- centers in like China and there's just like a thousand different vendors selling the same stuff. It's incredibly competitive. Oh yeah. Yeah. I love that in Thailand actually it gives you the opportunity to go in there and, and create your own destiny in a way. Yeah. Did you have a lot of tea in China? Oh yeah. A lot of tea, a lot of, um, noodles, a lot of McDonald's because that was like <laughs> the food that we were comfortable with right, uh, right. when we ran out of other things, McDonald's and KFC. Yeah. I was um, going to say KFC, right? Back then. Oh yeah. That's good stuff. Mm, the Kentucky fried chicken. <laughs> Fun fact it's, though. I actually prefer Korean fried chicken. Ah, that's good stuff. stuff is amazing. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a quarter Korean. I love oh, Korean nice. food. Oh man. And uh, yes. KFC is definitely pretty amazing. Yeah. I mean, KFC, the literal Kentucky one is good. I grew up on that kind of like Southern food special place there, but Korean fried chicken just, it's, it's perfect. It's done just right. It's not, it's crunchy. There's a little air space there. It's cooked well and juicy and like, you know, and, and you don't have all that breading. I lived cat a corner from a banchan chicken in DC in Navy yard. And it was, you know, probably not a great idea for me, but I had it like once a week. It was all so good. Yeah. Banchan is good. Yeah. We got one here recently. I'm very excited about that because uh, food diversity in Phoenix, eh, we have great Mexican food. We have really good sushi. The rest of the stuff. Mm, it's it has kind of surprising. It's a lot of, get a lot of fresh fish from, from all <laughs> yeah. the water there in Phoenix. You know what? Ironically we do <laughs> because apparently we're on some sort of like fresh delivery route, like out from like LA and, and San Diego. So it's like coming in right there and they go through here to get to Vegas. And so we get a ton of fresh fish delivery here. It's better sense. here. There's a, there's a lot of really good sushi here and it's actually better here than it is in DC. So we don't want anything out of the water in DC. Uh, shellfish. The shellfish is great there. So obviously the like soft shell crab is really good. The oysters are great there. But but not from the Potomac or anything near that. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. (laughs) So is there not good sushi in DC? There's not. I mean, I went to a couple of pretty good places, but they were very expensive. And here you can get really good for, you know, moderate price. It doesn't have to be like this, you know, five-star experience to get good sushi. And in, in DC, I found it to be like, you had to go to really expensive places to get the good stuff. It's the same thing with the Mexican food there. Mexican food in DC is horrible. Uh, good to I'm know. sorry to anyone listening who's in <laughs> DC and whatever else. Maybe you so, don't have a counter experience. It's not good. It's really bad. That's why you want to live slightly outside of DC also. Because, so we like to think that like any Mexican that's kind of like, hole in the wall, like kind of crappy place is usually better food than everywhere else. So like, you're not going to get that in, you know, a city as much because there's like more competition, more stuff around, whatever. Um, so, you know, there's a couple places out near us that are, have pretty good Mexican. And we also have a place that people say is pretty good sushi. I don't personally eat sushi because I just don't like it, but yeah. Uh, are you ready for a Chuck story? Sure. <laughs> sure. Okay. 
<clears throat> so the best Mexican I ever had in DC, and I'm not sure if it exists there anymore or whatnot, but um, so we moved there uh, like 2011, something like that, and went to first. So I'm going to give you a little counterpoint here. So the, we went to L'Oreal Plaza, which is, uh, I don't know, it's like 17th and around U Street, just a little south of U. And a very popular place. People all said, oh, yeah, they have great Mexican food. Blah, blah, blah. Um, I got this thing that was, I think it was a chimichanga, but it, it tasted like it had like denty more beef stew in it. And I asked them for hot sauce and they brought me, um, oh, what is that? Just like Louisiana hot sauce or whatever, like Tabasco sauce. And I was like, oh, no, do you have anything else like Cholula, like popular brands like Cholula or something? And they're like, mm, no, this is all we have. OK, so terrible Mexican food, replicated this experience a few different times and various levels, but still pretty <laughs> bad. So some friends told us about a speakeasy restaurant that was kind of uh, in the neighborhood up. Um, uh, not Adams Morgan. See, I'm starting to forget all the neighborhoods, but like up near the Target Um Anyway, regardless. Near the target. Yep, near Got a target, it. which is a big thing <laughs> in the city. Uh, you have a target in the city, that's a big deal. So in it's like a housing project that you go to, you go to whatever address, dial a number on the phone for the unit, and you know they let you know if they have space for you or not. Yeah, you know, we have four people. Da, da, da. They're like, okay. Then they come to the window and drop keys out of the window. You go inside. And uh, they have like a couple of picnic tables. There's like a grandma, like, you know, stirring some big stew <laughs> and just, and it smells amazing. It was like, oh, this is, this is awesome. Okay. Stacks of like uh, orchata, like juices and just beers and whatever else you want. And you just like sit down, you get a little menu. It's like kind of like a restaurant, but it's a secret restaurant. It's not anywhere. You just, a tax -free just have a restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we just happen to have friends that like knew about this thing and this is what you do. So we're like, okay, I guess we'll go do it. Was fantastic. Like really nice Mexican food. We had like some like squash blossom quesadillas and some pozole and like other like very uh, tacos de lengua, you know, like the stuff that's like a little edgy, but like really good stuff. So I had that, that was good in DC. Don't think any, I don't think anyone can replicate it there ever again. And the rest is shite. So that's my story. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, I asked because uh, yeah, Liz and I are thinking about, well, we're, we're just trying to figure out where we might want to move. We've been trying to buy a house in the Bay for like a year. And it, we're just like, yeah, it's not going to happen in an area that we like. Uh, and <laughs> California as a whole is also like, yeah, I don't know if it would be the smartest place to buy a house now that everybody's going remote and, you know, the fires are like getting bigger every year. Mm -hmm. Um, so we're looking around her friend works, I think in the, uh, state department or something in government in general, she like learned Korean. She does like translations or something. Um, and so yeah, we figured, Arlington, Alexandria, just anywhere around there might be good. Um, but <laughs> is it not, I, you don't recommend yeah. it. <laughs> uh, so I have a lot of opinions about things. I don't know if you've noticed this, but um, so we lived there nope. for like seven years and we lived in the city. We were not bridge and tunnel like Robbie. So 
Do you have kids? Not yet, but yeah. maybe in the next few years. Cool. It's going to be fun for you. Obviously, once a pandemic is not in play. Uh, lived a few different places in the city. I, being in the city is is definitely a great experience, and I would recommend that. Buying is obviously a challenge in the city, but at least like maybe go give yourself a year there because um, the market's hot right now anyway with money being cheap, like things oh, yeah. are, yeah, it's, you know, they people places won't even let you do inspections, yada, yada, yada. So, yeah. you know, go, uh, we lived in three different places. So we were around like 16th and U. Like I said, I, I worked at National Geographic. And so my work was 13 blocks straight south. That was really fun for a little while. And then, of course, I could just run into the White House three more blocks. Um, so there's a lot going around there. There's, um, oh, I lived in Capitol Hill for a little bit. That's a little little slower. Um, nice places, but we're a little more family-centric. And then Navy Yard, which was kind of blowing up when we lived there and has continued to. So you're right on the water there. It's really accessible to a bunch of areas, like three different metros, very walkable, bike-friendly city, not a ton of uh, snow, obviously. And then uh, we were five blocks south of the Capitol. So even when it did snow, we just like walked up there. My son was like a year old and we can just like sled him down right next to the Capitol. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, totally. So, I mean, what would be your opposition to like, you know, somewhere close to DC on the Metro or near the Metro that you can just kind of ride in anytime. Like if yeah, there's because, other stuff there that you like, like kind of the same experience because you pay just as much and sometimes more because you're in the school district competition versus like the mm -hmm. non kid person thing. And I could walk there and you were going to take a train in a busy train in and have a much longer commute. That's fair. Yeah. Honestly, yeah, I think we could probably buy in the city. We've talked about like how we wouldn't mind living in Brooklyn or in San Francisco oh, yeah. if we could buy a house. But, you know, the houses that are for sale that are like, you know, decent size are like two or three million. So, yeah, exactly. And not you can exactly do a starter home. No, no. And you can do some of that, especially in like, um, like East Capitol Hill. There's definitely plenty of things to be, and there's an area a little bit north called Brookland. Uh, there's things up there, or if you go over on the northwest side and start to go up Wisconsin, you have like um, near like Cathedral Heights, things like that, which are a little further up, but more family centric. And and you know, there's a housing inventory there that that's actually pretty nice too. But yeah, if I, I just, was like uh, without kid, I would just rent a place for a year right in the heart of it, enjoy uh, it, and then figure it out. I think probably no matter where we decide to go, we're going to rent for a while, most likely. I, it just seems very intimidating to try to buy a house without actually living there first. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, you, you, you got to know what it feels like to like have to go buy a gallon of milk, you know, whatever. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, I, like how hard is this and do I enjoy whatever in this neighborhood and yeah. It sucks too because we really do feel like owning a house. And if if we had maybe bought one two years ago, we would have been able to get into the Bay Area market with like a good at a good price point. Probably not like the nicest areas, but like somewhere that's not super far out. Now it's just like 
Insane. I mean, if you if you want to experience that feeling, I'm going to call you the next time something breaks in my house and let you know, like, oh, surprise thing. I need an air conditioning unit. <laughs> like, because that's what owning a house feels like is every couple of months, something needs your attention. Yeah. Or, you know, stop on, you know, on your way out, stop by here. You can mow my lawn, you know, trim the hedges, whatever else. <laughs> that's what owning a house feels like. So, you know, you know, there's pluses and minuses. I think it'll probably get really old real fast, but currently we're living in like a 700 square foot, one bedroom apartment with way too small a kitchen. And that's, yeah. I even think just like an upgrade in an apartment, honestly, like a two bedroom would be so nice. When and we our actually last, could, oh, go ahead. I got, I mean, no, you, I, I cut okay. you off. Go ahead. Uh, we, we could actually uh, do that in San Francisco right now. We're just kind of over San Francisco now get, at this I point. I that. I'm I'm telling you I'm going to send us our send you our old building in DC. Uh, it was like a brand new building, and when we moved into it. It was a two bedroom, two bath, 930 square feet. We felt like, oh my gosh, we made it. This place is amazing. Uh, fun fact, side note: that's the size of our master suite of our house now. So anyway, pluses and minuses. Yeah, but you're not yeah. walking to everything right now. No, I can do a little bit of walk walking here. Uh, lucky for me, that's like why we chose our neighborhood is it's not like it, we don't live in a track house, like way out in the suburbs. We're a little bit like connected to, to a few things in not like quite in the city, but we're like basically between Phoenix and Scottsdale and a place called Arcadia. So there's like a mm -hmm. nice big mountain in the background and there's, a you know, some businesses in uh, like walkable distance between like, 15, 20 minutes from our house. So we do that here and there. That's like kind of the ideal for us too. Like we were looking in mostly like Berkeley, El Cerrito, Albany, if you know, Bay area cities, yeah. um, because they're very much like that. Like most houses are within, you know, 20 ish minutes of walking of like something. Uh, we were looking in Oakland a little while, but Oakley can be rough. And a lot of the neighborhoods we were yeah. looking in, were just like, I, especially with the prices they are the way they are right now. Like if there's a downturn and we're upside down on a house in a neighborhood, that's not the nicest. Yeah. Like, I, I don't know about that. I grew up like in the Oakland Hills, but on the outskirts of Oakland and like knowing what that's like. So well, uh, try something else. Why not? Right. Yeah. Yeah. We're looking yeah, at like Denver. Oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, except for the market is just crazy right now. Like people are like, Hey, a house for sale. Here's a pile of cash. Like, yeah. where did you get that pile of cash? You can buy, yeah. what you do is you move to DC, hang out for a year and you can buy Robbie's house when he moves out to the country. Yeah. Or I, you can just rent my house and we can move to the country soon. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you have buyer's remorse. Didn't you just buy that house like six months ago? Yeah. No, I mean, we just, so I don't know if we told you the whole story, but we were looking at land first out of Middleburg and we put an offer on some land and we were going to build a house on it. And then uh, that fell through and we were like, okay, well, we still want to move somewhere because we're just tired of being in the same house. <laughs> just, you know, <laughs> just for fun. Um, so we, we moved basically three blocks down the road, um, which in hindsight was maybe not the best choice. We should have just <laughs> stayed and waited until we could get something in the country. But yeah, whatever. I mean, we like our new house better. Like our old house, you had to go up and down the stairs a lot because the kitchen was on the first floor and then the living room was on the second floor. 
So we have dogs and we were like carrying them up and down cause like they can't do the stairs all the time. And like, yeah, it just got old, but now everything like main living is on the first floor. So we can, we bring them down once and we're there the whole day. So like, I mean, and you're 30 now, so those knees have got to be popping. <laughs> yep. 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 <laughs> <laughs> age jokes, hashtag age jokes. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah. I'm going to end it here cause we're at, over an hour um we can keep chatting a bit after if you want but uh thanks everybody for listening and if you liked what you heard uh you know follow us we really appreciate it and we'll keep doing the same thing be at you next week with another whiskey and love and whatnot <laughs>